you have your Bibles, why don't we go together to Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. And if you do need a Bible while we're turning there, you can lift your hand up. We have a few in the aisles. We'd be happy to let you utilize one for the study this morning, so you can follow along with us. This morning we'll finish up the 23rd chapter together, which, interestingly enough, will have us then turning the corner on the last chapter in uh, Luke's Gospel together, so uh, you can... If you desire, begin just uh, praying as far as where the Lord would uh, have us to be next on a Sunday morning as far as uh, studying in the Word of God. Wednesday night, we continue to just move uh, straight through the Scriptures from Genesis, and we'll just keep moving forward, Exodus, and uh, are through the Bible study. On Sunday mornings, I like to uh, continue to keep our focus in a New Testament book, but at the same time, rather than uh, being redundant to do gospel after gospel, we, we kind of like to just uh, pray and see what book the Lord would have us to to study next. And it is interesting that the books and scriptures, we look at them, it's very clearly that, that the Holy Spirit has kind of weaved certain themes uh, through some of the different uh, New Testament letters. Again, the focus that the different gospel writers take. Uh, and again, even as we look at the epistles, the purposes of them, the, the reasons they were written. Uh, and I like to pray and just be sensitive to the fact of, Lord, okay, wh- where are we at as a fellowship and what do we, what do we need to hear next? We're going to study it all either way, but Lord, uh, what would you have us to hear in the next uh, season as a ministry? Uh, so you can be praying together with me that the Lord would uh, make that evident. So if you have a desire uh, to cast your vote, the way to do it in Calvary Chapel is you pray. Uh, that's the way we operate. So you can ask the Lord, who's the head of the church, to uh, show us where we would study next. And if you have a favorite book, uh, pray. And the good thing is, even if your vote doesn't count this time, you just keep praying, stick around for about 10 or 12 years, and eventually God will answer your prayer. Uh, and we'll study that book, and maybe God will answer your prayer. Just can't promise how he'll answer it and, and what year. But if he leaves us here another 10 or 12 years, uh, I promise to keep teaching the Bible uh, straight through, and your prayer will get answered eventually. This morning we're in chapter 23. We pick up right where we left off in verse 44, and we're going to run down through the remainder of the chapter. And as we do, would you stand together with me out of respect for God's word this morning? Luke 23, beginning in verse 44, says, Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last So when the centurion saw what happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that sight, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, city of the Jews, who himself also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. 
And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared the spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. And Father, we hold your word before you this morning, and we desire to be able to truly have an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church that's assembled this morning. Father, thank you for getting us here, for giving us the desire to get up on this gloomy day and to come to the house of the Lord and to just seek your face and to spend time with your Son who is in our midst. And we just pray, Jesus, that you, by your Spirit's ministry, would continue to be our teacher, even this day as you taught many years ago on this earth, and that you'd speak personally and powerfully to each and every one of our hearts from this portion of your holy word. Teach us now, Lord, prepare us to receive, and bless your word as it goes forth this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think it goes without saying that the impact of someone's death certainly can have a powerful effect upon all of our lives. You know, if you're here this morning, and many of us have, you've lost a loved one, maybe especially someone very close to you, and I don't even think it necessarily has to always be someone that we lose that's close to us. There's just something about the impact of someone's death, even notable figures that we see die, or if we're a part of a process, you know, I don't know how many times I have been involved from a pastoral standpoint or a chaplaincy standpoint with the police department years ago with the death process, and boy, there is something very impacting about the death process and the effect the powerful effect it has upon people's lives. That being said, there is no death that has had or any death, honestly, that still has a more powerful and life-changing effect than the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, you'll notice in the passage in front of us this morning as we're now at this spot where we're studying the actual death and burial of Jesus Christ, we see the powerful effect that Jesus' death had, even in just a few ways here in our passage alone. Some of the amazing things that happened, things like, number one, we'll see that access was made to go directly into the presence of God to be able to have all men now have the opportunity to approach God directly, to have free access into the presence of God. That is a direct result of the death of Jesus Christ. You also see in the passage in front of us things like a hardened, very tough man, this centurion, who was a hard, strong, battle-hardened man. He is humbled and deeply moved spiritually as the result of the death of Jesus. We notice as well towards the end of the section that there's another man, a wealthy man, who honestly we know from the other Gospels was a secret follower, a secret disciple of the Lord Jesus, but yet it's through the death of Jesus he then overcomes his cowardice and he finally takes a public stand for the Lord in his own life. Now again, our background right where we left off, I hate to say the term we left Jesus hanging on the cross, but in essence, scripturally, when we left off last time, Jesus has already gone through his sufferings. He's been put through the crucifixion process. We looked at that together last week. 
the excruciating and painful experience he's undergoing. He is now hanging on the cross, remember, between these two other criminals, experiencing the excruciating process of dying slowly as a result of the crucifixion process. And in verse 44, we're now told it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. So as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is there hanging upon the cross, making what Hebrews tells us is eternal redemption for the souls of men, Luke records for us this peculiar darkness that covers, it says, the whole land. He tells us it began at the sixth hour, which typically, according to Roman timekeeping, that would be a reference to 12 noon. So from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, indicating from 12 p.m. till 3 p.m., at the peak of daylight when the sun shines the brightest, right at that moment, from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., there is a three-hour darkness, an extraordinary darkness that covers the entire land. In fact, verse 45, notice, says the sun was darkened. That's pretty interesting. The sun itself was darkened, indicating this was not a natural thing. Commentators try and give a natural explanation, well, maybe it was this or that as an eclipse. My personal conviction, I'm a pretty simple guy, I think God just shut the lights off. <laughs> I think God who created the heavens and the earth and controls the sun decided because of what was taking place that he would supernaturally override the you know, affairs of, of nature which he's in charge of and God just darkened the sun, he shut the lights off. <clears throat> Interesting, we have a prophecy back in Amos chapter 8, verse 9. That declares, it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. The other Gospels tell us as well, at the same time, this three-hour peculiar kind of eerie darkness comes over the land, that also there was a great earthquake at this time. See, something so eternally profound, I believe, was happening amongst the Godhead, between Jesus the Son and the Father in heaven, that literally it's so powerful, so profound, that the earth shakes and trembles and, and God just turns the lights off. Almost I wonder if in some way it's because what he sees of the darkness of man, or maybe it's almost in a sense that God wants a sense of privacy because this is a family matter. This is something eternally profound and redemptive that is taking place between the most intimate relationship family-wise between the Father in heaven and the Son, Jesus Christ. So the earth trembles, the lights go out, and the Bible tells us that during these three hours of darkness, remember, Jesus made seven statements while he was on the cross. And it's during that three-hour period of darkness that we're told that Jesus, God's Son, the other Gospels say, cried out at that point these words, My God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Something humanly, if I can use the word, incomprehensible. I think it's holy ground to even try and fully grasp and lay hold of what was taking place. Words do not describe between the Godhead. In order to accomplish this eternal transaction, we have to understand Jesus, who was the sinless Son of God, 
the pure and innocent one. He never knew sin. He never committed sin, but yet in some way he had to become, as the Bible teaches, the sin offering to make redemption for the sins of the whole world. 2 Corinthians 5 seeks to try and describe in some way what was happening. It tells us this in 2 Corinthians 5, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. That is, listen, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. See, the Bible tells us all things are of God. God created humanity. God, God instituted our lives and the breath of life breathed into us. God gave us parameters, but yet sadly we failed, we rebelled and disobeyed God and sin entered the world through one man and then death through sin and thus death and sin have spread to all men. And God has a dilemma on his hands. God loves you and I. He loves humanity. He does not want to be separated from us. He wants to have fellowship, but yet he's just and he's a holy God. I love what it says in Romans chapter 3 as it talks about the doctrine of justification. It says that he is just and the justifier of those who believe. See, God, we need to understand, in his love, wanting to save the world, he couldn't compromise his justice. God couldn't just wink at sin and ignore it or kind of just brush it under the rug. He, he couldn't do that. He wouldn't be a just and a holy and a righteous God if he did that. Sin had to be punished. It had to be dealt with. So how does a holy, just, righteous God who I want him to be and who he is, and he can't change that. He's immutable. At the same time, loving and merciful and abounding in grace and goodness and kindness, how does he reconcile the problem of the sin of humanity on the earth? And the amazing thing is, he reconciles it. He's the one who intervenes and reconciles us, it says, back to himself. It says, God was in Christ, the Bible tells us, reconciling the world back to himself. We sin against God, we spit in God's face, we disobey God. And God doesn't say, well, you better make things right because you've created quite a mess. In the way. Instead, God lovingly initiates in a perfectly just, all-wise way, a perfect scenario where he can remain just and holy and yet loving and merciful and gracious. And God, through Christ, being fully divine, at the same time, fully human, finds a way to reconcile the world back to himself as Jesus comes, lives sinlessly, fulfills the righteous requirement of the law, and then steps into our place and takes the punishment that we all deserve for sin so that we can go free and that you and I, it says, can be the righteousness of God in him. Remaining just, and yet at the same time he has a way to justify those who believe. And again, that's the indication here. God was reconciling, 2 Corinthians 5, the world to himself, not imputing the trespasses that we have to us, but he made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us. See, somehow, please understand, the sin of the whole world, all of the cumulative amount of our sin, Everything we've done in the past, we still do presently, and that we'll make mistakes regarding tomorrow and next. And then you multiply that towards the history of humanity and every evil, wicked, despicable, loathsome, rotten, horrific thing that happens on this planet. And the Bible tells us that all of that somehow was being at this moment transferred over to Jesus. Could you imagine the shock to his system? 
If you've ever jumped in freezing cold water, and just the sinless Son of God, the sins of all the world being transferred onto His life, and then God's just and holy wrath against sin being fired down upon the very Son of God to make payment for the punishment of our sins. And the Bible is very clear to us that sin causes separation. That is why during these three hours of darkness, I bring to your attention that it's interesting that it's in that hour when this eternal transaction is taking place that Jesus says, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Listen to what's happening there. Somehow a breach happens between the fellowship of the Father and Son as Jesus becomes the sin offering and something unspeakable and humanly unexplainable happens between Jesus and the Father in some brief moment in time. Something takes place. Again, Jesus, remember, who was an always perfect fellowship with the Father. He said, I don't do anything unless the Father shows me and does it. I don't say anything unless the Father tells me. He did everything in perfect harmony and fellowship with his Father, and yet now for a moment in time as he's becoming the sin offering and sin causes separation, Jesus is without information. Why hast thou forsaken me? And something happens here where Jesus feels a sense of separation as he's experiencing the punishment for the sins of the whole world in that very hour as our sacrificial substitute. And he's experiencing that separation of sin and what it causes between a person and God. And he cries out something that now, by the grace of God and the work of Jesus Christ, a human being will never have to cry out if they just put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If our faith and trust is in Jesus Christ and His finished work, we will never have to shriek the cry, God, why have you forsaken me? But yet Jesus here was experiencing that very thing in this hour of darkness in some moment as that eternal transaction was settled there between He and the Father on the cross. Verse 45 continues saying, And the sun was darkened, and notice also Luke says, the veil of the temple was torn in two. So at the death process of Jesus, we're told that that known barrier of separation that existed in the temple, which was a known barrier of separation that kept man from God's presence, at that hour of his death on the cross, it was removed. It was taken away. The veil of the temple was a large, thick veil, literally a few stories high, Historians believe a few inches thick of cloth and it was a veil that separated the two rooms inside the temple. It separated the two chambers inside the temple. The holy place, which was the front room, from the holy of holies or the most holy place, which was the smaller room in the back. The outer room, the holy place of the temple, was where the priest member entered in. It's where they performed their daily ministries at the table of showbread. They tended to the lampstand and the altar of incense. That was in the front room or the, the holy place. And then there was the veil, this thick veil that separated from the inner room called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And the reason, because there is where at the ark God manifests his presence among them. That was where the kabod or the weight of the glory of God was being manifest among his people. And God's presence was there and because God's presence was manifest there, 
No one could go beyond that veil. It was a reminder that they could not just walk right into the presence of God. Remember, only one man, the high priest, and only one time a year with the blood of an innocent substitute could go into the Holy of Holies where God's presence was to make atonement there for the sins of the nation for the entire year. Only one man, one time a year with the blood of a sacrifice could go in. And that veil purposely was there and it purposely separated those two areas to indicate to man that in your finite sinful condition you cannot walk directly into the presence of God. He's too awesome. He's too holy. He's too incredible. And that veil served to continually remind them that they did not and could not have free access to enter directly into God's presence. They could not approach God nor enter his presence because man was simply too sinful and God was too holy and too awesome. Yet God has always desired to have intimate fellowship with mankind, to have direct relationship. So what does Jesus do? As we're talking about, Jesus comes to reconcile that problem of separation. Jesus comes to remove the barrier that God did not want to exist between himself and people on this earth, but yet sin had caused. Interesting, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3 says, Christ died for our sins. Interesting, that's why at the death of Jesus here, we read in verse 45 that as Jesus is dying, it says the veil of the temple, verse 45, was torn in two. You read Matthew's account in Matthew 27. There it says the temple veil was torn from top to bottom. So here you have this thick veil, a few inches thick of cloth, a few stories high. And it says that temple veil was torn from top to bottom. Now that's an indication of something. There was no high priest that scaled up to the top of the temple veil and with a big set of shears was cutting his way down. That's not what's taking place. God was miraculously intervening at the hour where atonement for sins was being provided and God was satisfied now. God miraculously intervenes and, and, and rips apart this veil of separation. That was a barrier that kept mankind from being able to come directly to him. And God is a very clear, visible statement in the temple of what was happening spiritually and eternally. wanted everyone to know direct access. It's now available. Finally, my son has done what is necessary and as a result of what he accomplished, now man can come directly to me. The barrier has been removed. The finished work of Jesus took away that barrier of sin that hindered open access for people to come directly to God. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 10 says in relation to this. Hebrews 10 verse 19 and 20. It says, We have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. The Bible indicating to us that as Jesus died, as his flesh was torn, God says in the same moment, I was satisfied with the payment for sin and the veil has now been removed. And it says we have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. A boldness that we have direct access through the sacrificial work and death of Jesus. God is satisfied and therefore because of that now, listen, every person can come 
directly to God through Jesus Christ. Through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and His blood that was shed to make payment for our sins, we can come and have direct access to God. Listen, we do not need to come to God through a priest. We do not need to come to God through a sacrificial system of a works or religious activity. God has lovingly arranged for us to be able to come directly, directly to Him. That is wonderful news, that there is no barrier. We can come directly to God. Hebrews 7 says that He is able to save those who come to God through Him. Regarding Jesus, He's able to save those who come to God through Him. Jesus said in His own words, John 14, I am the way, and no one, listen, no one comes to the Father except through Me. See, so important for us to realize what the Bible teaches because sadly, many people's understanding and sadly what is conveyed even through certain religious movements and, and circles of the church indicates to people something different. That you can approach God but it's through a set of religious works or a system or you can approach God but it's, it's through an appointed individual that you must sort of go through them as an intermediary to get to God when the Bible teaches very clearly that direct access has been made to God through Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches clearly that we don't need to come through any human mediator to approach God. That we don't need to encounter God through another person or we don't need to go to another person to receive from God. I think one of the places we see this stated most clearly is 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 where it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. One God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. See, nowhere, the Bible knows nothing of us having to approach God by coming to some spiritual figure. Nowhere does the Bible know anything of having to approach God or confess our sins to a priest or to some spiritual figure. The Bible tells us that we can come directly to God through the high priest himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one mediator. We, there's only one who died for our sins. So therefore, we can come to God directly. We have access. That's wonderful because many people don't grasp that. Many people don't recognize the reality. Listen, you, you, the focus is on Jesus. Access is through Jesus. You, you, don't, you can go directly to Jesus. You don't need a system or some spiritual person over your life to be able to receive and experience God in your life. The Bible makes it very evident. Listen to what Hebrews 4.16 says. It's an incredible promise to us as believers. It says this, Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The throne of God's grace, the Bible says we can come boldly. Boldly, directly, openly to that throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ and you are in standing with Him by faith and His blood is covering your sins and you have right relationship with Him, it's because of that relationship you can have direct access to the throne of God. But it's only because of that relationship. Apart from that relationship, we can. Again, I always entertain my children had direct access to me. 
always have direct access. But it's because they understand relationship. They don't care if you're talking to me. They wouldn't prayer, care if the, you know, the most important figure on the earth was talking to me. If they want to talk to me, they understand relationship. They just come directly to me. But it's because they understand relationship. Again, if you tried to have direct access to the President of the United States, you know, well, I, just, I, I think I will. I'm just going to go visit him for Thanksgiving. You try and run across the lawn in the White House. I hope you're right with Jesus before you try that. Because you're going to meet God real quick. But, if somehow you had relationship, let's say you were marrying the President's daughter, or you somehow were adopted by the President of the United States, all of a sudden now, because of relationship, access changes. Because of relationship. And see, this is the glorious thing the New Testament teaches about having a relationship with Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God. And we have direct access. We can come boldly. Lord, help me. Lord, forgive me. And we can go directly to Him in prayer despite our performance or whatever because of the relationship and the standing we have in the work of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 46. It goes on to say, And when Jesus then had cried out with a loud voice, He said, Father, into Your hands I commit My spirit. And having said this, He breathed His last. Take notice the Bible shows us that Jesus is actually here deciding the exact moment of his death. Remember Jesus said earlier in John chapter 10, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. Indicating Jesus was in complete control of all these events that we've been studying together happening to him. The arrests, the beatings, the suffering, the crucifixion. Even his very death itself, he was obediently submitting to all the mistreatment. He was willingly complying with all the suffering. And once eternal redemption was completed on the cross, at that very moment, it tells us here, verse 46, that Jesus cried out with a loud voice. What did he cry out? What he cried out, John 19, verse 30 tells us, prior to Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, the last thing he cried out once eternal redemption was resolved is he said, it is finished. Tetelestai was the term that he used, which literally meant paid in full. It's what they would write on your certificate of debt as a criminal. Once you had satisfied your term and your time in prison, they would write across your, your certificate of debt, had all your crimes listed on it, and then when you were, and it was posted outside your prison door, once you had served your penalty for your crime, they would then write across your certificate of debt, Tetelestai, paid in full, and it was given to you to assure you could never be punished for those crimes again. Because you could say, no, look, paid in full. There's my crimes, but they're paid in full. That's the term Jesus used when he died on the cross. He said, it is finished, Tetelestai, he literally said. Paid in full. Nothing else need to be done. Payment is made. The debt is settled. And the amazing thing is typically when a crucified victim was dying on the cross, it could take upwards to days to go through the death process. It was a long, slow, excruciating process. Yet Jesus, we read here, actually determines the very moment when he dismisses his spirit from his physical body there on the earth, once he completed his intended purpose, John 19 tells us he gave up his spirit. And that's what Luke is describing here, how he had the power to dismiss himself 
from the human body that he was dwelling in and declared, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Look at this. Here is the perfect man representative for us, Jesus Christ. And in his very death, you see here an example of how the death process transpires. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that like Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we have power to determine when we die. He was God. We're not. Yet, the reality is the death process, the physical death process is something we will all experience even as Jesus experienced it. And here you have set before you in the Bible how the Bible defines or describes the physical death process. And that is simply what you see happening here. That is the spirit departing or separating from the body. James chapter 2 verse 26 says, the body without the spirit is dead. And at some point at death, once we breathe our last breath, our spirit, which is the eternal part of us, which will last forever, God again breathed into our nostrils the breath of life, that, that eternal part of us. When we breathe our last breath, our spirit will depart from this earthly body, this physical frame that we've inhabited, but we will live forever. And we will continue to live. The question is this, is where will we depart to? Our spirit will depart from this physical frame. The Bible says the body, you know, the body without the spirit is dead. That's how they determine death. When the line goes flat, the spirit has departed, that person is clinically dead. The question is where is our spirit going to depart to? And the answer to that is really quite simple. Where we go depends honestly on who we know. It's dependent upon our relationship with God prior to that moment. Again, remember the example of Jesus and the thief of the cross we looked at last week. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. You're going to die, but you're not going to cease to exist. He understood that and Jesus assured him of that. Today you will be with me. As a result of his relationship with Jesus, he departed to be with the Lord. And if we've accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord and made a commitment to him, then the Bible tells us spiritually God is our Father. Romans 8 verse 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And if deed we suffer with him, we also shall be glorified together. 2 Corinthians 5.8 assures the child of God or the believer that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's an assurance. Paul, when he's struggling with whether or not he would prefer to die and go to heaven and be with the Lord or whether he wants to stay on earth and continue to minister to the Philippians and he was torn between the two, he says, I, I, I would rather I desire to depart and to be with Christ which is far better. But again, what did Paul realize? To depart is to be with Christ. That the moment a Christian, someone who has faith and trust in Jesus Christ, breathes their last breath instantaneously, they're together present with the Lord. But it's so important to realize that that is the death process. There is an eternal part of you who is the real you that will either be in the presence of the Lord or ultimately will be cast into the lake of fire a place of eternal torment where life will not cease and suffering will continue perpetually and eternally in the same way it does for those who go to heaven who put their trust in Jesus Christ.
And here we see how the death process happens. Jesus at this moment breathes his last. He commits his spirit into the hands of his Father in heaven. He says, verse 47 says, So when the centurion saw what had happened, notice he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. Take notice of another powerful effect and impact of Jesus' death. Here you have this battle-hardened man drawing out, now God does through Jesus' death, a confession towards Jesus Christ. We're told this centurion here, and again a centurion was a commander of a hundred soldiers among a Roman legion. And a centurion, please understand, they earned their commanding position in the Roman army because of one thing their tremendous battle combat experience and their knowledge of warfare. They weren't given that title easily. They earned that. So these, please understand, centurions, these were battle-hardened men. They had combat experience. They understood what it was like to courageously get in the midst of warfare and battle. These were brave men. These were noble men. And they had to be strong leaders to control their Roman troops that were under their authority. And they had to be strong leaders because in the midst of, of heated battle, they had to make hard decisions. And these centurions, they didn't sit behind a desk and write out military plans on a piece of paper and send out the battlefield. Not these guys. These guys led from the front, right in the heat of the battle. These guys chewed nails, you know, instead of bubble gum. These were hardened, strong, tough, alpha male type men, these centurions. And to me, I find it extremely beautiful. Here you have this battle-hardened, tough-as-nails Roman soldier. And yet, as he is going through these events, experiencing this, there's a powerful breakthrough that happens in his personal life regarding his spiritual understanding. This guy is strong, but he's sensible. He is rough and rugged, but he's a wise and a reasonable man. And consider the culmination of all this guy's experiencing and being exposed to. He's watching the suffering of Jesus and how he handles it. And how he's silently, so strong, Jesus, he just silently says nothing through the beating, through the scourging, through the crucifixion. And he's watching Jesus endure all these things. He sees the three hours of supernatural darkness he experiences the earthquake and he's listening to jesus and the things this guy is saying from the cross and as a result of that it causes him to have to clearly realize and recognize exactly who jesus is luke tells us here that when the centurion saw what had happened he glorified god saying certainly this was a righteous man we're told in the other Gospels, Mark 15, that he exclaimed as well, truly this was the Son of God. As you look at the account here, it seems very clear this man was having a personal spiritual encounter. He was having an experience with God that day. And all the events that transpired. And I love this scene, again, because, please hear me, this, this is a strong, this is alpha male. This is as strong and as tough of a man as you can get. And yet notice there is no weakness to believe in Jesus Christ. There's no, there's no weakness to have faith and a commitment in Jesus and to honor Jesus. You know, this is a strong man. He had been hardened by things he saw. You know what this guy saw in combat and conflict? 
and the things he went through, but yet when he looked at Jesus and he evaluated for himself who Jesus was, he was so impressed that Jesus won his respect and won his honor. And there was nothing of weakness in his mind of submitting to Jesus. And I love this because our culture needs to see this more. We used to have a, a gentleman in the prior church that I uh, pastored was uh, in military and he actually uh, spent time overseas. He was a pretty high-ranking officer. He actually interrogated terrorists. And I used to, I remember we used to spend time with this guy when I just got to know him a little more and I found out kind of his background a little bit. I used to think to myself, you know, this guy, I mean, he could probably kill everybody in the room with his bare hands. And this guy loved Jesus. And he was a man of God, a godly husband and a godly father, and he loved the Lord. And he could have twisted anybody's neck and you would have been done. There's no sign of weakness. It was an indication of his strength, that he understood how to be strong and sensible about spiritual realities at the same time. And when anybody just truly evaluates Jesus and considers who he really is, he's so impressive. Why wouldn't we want to follow him? Why wouldn't we be astonished to want to give our allegiance to him? This centurion recognized that on the very day that Jesus died. Verse 48 says, And that whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all Jesus' acquaintance and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So as Jesus is dying, notice, as is still today, there were a lot of different responses going on to the death of Jesus. Some, it seems, were emotionally stirred, but then it seems they just returned back to everyday life. They were stirred, but they weren't changed. They were emotionally stirred, but went back to life as usual. They didn't make any commitments. And yet we read as well here of a group of women who were followers of Jesus who remained committed to sort of keep an eye on the affairs as he was dying. And we see them here standing back at a distance, wisely standing back from a safe vantage point as things were going on. Well, verse 50 down through verse 56, as you notice when we read it, basically then gives us Luke's record of the burial of Jesus. And let me read the account from 50 down through 56 that Luke describes of Jesus' burial. It says, Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, took it down and wrapped it in linen, laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. And that day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed after and they observed the tomb and how his body had been laid. And then they returned and prepared the spices and fragrant oils and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. So here we get Luke's depiction of the burial of Jesus and the process and the people who were involved in putting Jesus' body into the tomb. And I'd like to really focus our remaining thoughts and exposition, particularly on Joseph of Arimathea and what he did. But before we do that, let me just mention a few other things. First of all, take notice there in verse 54 of the setting of Jesus' death and burial. It tells us that it was on the preparation day, which would be Friday prior to sundown. Because Sabbath began sundown on Friday, and then it would go until sundown on Saturday. So Jesus has now died. It's late in the day on Friday. It says here in our text that the Sabbath drew near. 
And we know from the Old Testament on the Sabbath day, the law stated that the Jews had to cease and refrain from labor. They could do no ordinary work. That's why as Joseph is quickly burying the body of Jesus, we read there in verse 55 that the women who had come with Jesus, that they were observing the tomb and where or how his body was laid. Again, these women were followers of Jesus. They realized that this was a quick process before the Sabbath started to get his body ready. It wasn't the complete preparation of embalming that you typically would give if you really wanted to honor someone as they died. And their love for him, they wanted Jesus to have the absolute best. So these women are watching and their plan is to wait out the Sabbath and then to come back and to finish the job of embalming Jesus in an honorable way after the Sabbath was over. That's why verse 56 says they returned, prepared the spices and fragrant oils, notice, but they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now, to me, I find this interesting. Their intention was to get the materials ready, the spices, the fragrant oils, and they're going to come back and finish the process. But Luke tells us, verse 56, that they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. To me, I find that interesting because I think it's a great picture. Even in an hour, and put yourself into the scene, in an hour, when these women who love Jesus, when their emotions, no doubt, were at peak levels because of all they just watched and experienced with the Lord, notice they still submitted themselves to the commands of Scripture, that they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Think about how their emotions must have been like a hurricane at this point in time. I mean, you want to talk about a vortex of emotions and thoughts and feelings and what they watched going on and as they're experiencing Jesus be beaten and brutalized and put to death and how their emotions were probably off the charts and rightfully so. And think about it, they could have just disregarded what the scripture said and got caught up in the wave of the emotions of this is disgraceful and we have to honor him. They could have just disregarded the Sabbath commandment and said we've got to do this now. And what, We don't know what they're going to do with his body. But yet, wisely, they let God's word govern their decisions and their actions instead. And they submitted to the written revelation of scripture rather than letting their emotions and their feelings, probably very strong as they were, to guide and direct them. And I point this out because this is a great example for all of us. Because we're all going to have times when it's intense. And when things are heated or we go through a very stressful, highly emotional time or experience. And, and you know, we can all face hard hours in our lives. When our emotions are at peak level and the stress and the difficult hour and everything is going on. And what happens? In that hour, our emotions, they can go all over the map, Right? And our thoughts and our feelings are just overwhelming us. And if we're not careful, what can begin to happen is then in those matters, we begin to respond according to our emotions and our feelings. Listen, it is never a wise thing to live, to act, and to decide things according to the pressures and persuasions of powerful emotions and thoughts and feelings. The wise thing to do is, even in those sensitive hard hours, continue to live submitted to the written revelation of Scripture. Because when our emotions are at high peak and we're in stressful hours, we have a tendency to then want to justify that we can do things that are contrary to Scripture because we feel so strongly about it. No, no, no. The Word of God governs our lives. 
the word of God rules over us and despite how I feel or what I think, the word of God, I will submit and subject myself to the written revelation of scripture and that's a wise and a safe thing to do. And I think these women demonstrate a great example before us in relation to that. Well, that being said, let, let's talk for a few minutes about this man Joseph of Arimathea. The one who, we're told, buries Jesus. All four Gospels speak to us about him. Uh, who was Joseph of Arimathea? Well, the collective group of Gospels tell us that he was a prominent council member. That means that he was a part of the Sanhedrin. He was a prominent figure among the Sanhedrin. He was a man of influence. He was a man of great position. He had a prestigious standing among his peers and in the public. The other Gospels tell us as well that he was a rich man. The Gospels tell us that he was quite wealthy and to have your own hand-carved tomb there in Israel was a clear indication of wealth. We're told as well here in verse 50 that he was a good and a just man. That is, he was a man of high moral standing. He lived right. And I think that's most clearly seen in direct relation to his response when they put Jesus to death. Because you notice here in verse 51, apparently though he was a part of the Sanhedrin which facilitated the arrest and the condemning and death of Jesus, verse 51 tells us that he had not consented, the, the language really means he had not cast the vote, he had not consented to their decision and deed. See, somehow, Joseph refrained from this decision to condemn Jesus. Somehow, he indicated his disapproval, whether he was not there, he did not consent to what they were doing. Verse 51 tells us that instead he was someone who was waiting for the kingdom of God. In other words, he had a messianic expectation. And it seems that he had connected the dots to realize that Jesus was the Messiah. That he was the promised Savior. Matthew 27 tells us of Joseph that he had become a disciple of Jesus. John 19, verse 38, tells us this, and listen clearly. It says, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, went and asked Pilate to take away the body of Jesus. See, in this man's heart, he had apparently come to believe who Jesus was for himself. And he had come to recognize who Jesus was, and he had actually committed to be his follower. He had become a disciple and a follower of Jesus, but yet he was intimidated by the personal cost of what it would mean if he went public for that. So instead, he's dedicated, he's committed to Jesus, but yet he at this point sought to keep that commitment in his heart and he's keeping it a secret. And he doesn't want to make it public or known to others, it says here, because he was fearful of the personal cost and he was ashamed to publicly indicate that he truly was a follower of the Lord and that he was a believer in his heart because of what it might cost. And can I just say, certainly there are still folks today who probably do the exact same thing. They believe Jesus Christ. They trust in who he is. They want to be a follower of Jesus, but they are, they're, just, they're, they're keeping it secret because they're intimidated of what it's going to cost to open up about it for fear of whatever it is. For him, it was fear of the Jews. And for fear of what it would mean, they're a follower, but they're a secret follower. They're a secret disciple because of fear and shame at that point. Well, notice what Joseph does in the hour of Jesus' death. Knowing Jesus would be condemned on the cross as a criminal as he was, verse 52 says that he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. See, there's a reason behind this. Is Joseph understood, if he didn't intervene, 
Crucified victims were usually left upon the cross for their bodies to just rot, for the corpse to just rot and fall off of the cross. And if anything, the Romans would take the body of a crucified criminal and they would just toss it into a garbage heap there in the city. They didn't feel any crucified criminal deserved any respect or dignity, but Joseph secretly devoted to Jesus. And he has come to admire Jesus so much that notice in this hour he cannot bear the thought of Jesus' body being desecrated. So at this point, notice his commitment to Jesus now rises up to the surface like never before. And all of a sudden now a critical hour comes where he musters up the courage to forget his personal shame and even the risk that's going to be involved. And trust me, it was a risk. The other Gospels tell us taking courage he went and asked for the body of Jesus from Pilate. The Greek indicates he dared to go. Why? Think about it. The council he was a part of, the Jews, they had pressured and nagged Pilate to kill this guy. And now he's going to go walk into Pilate's presence and say, as a council member, uh, can I have his body to give him a dignified burial? Are you kidding? Off with this guy's head. They irritate me. That was a risky move. Not to mention, he was going to go and take down the bloodied corpse of Jesus the body of our Lord in front of all those people publicly and give it a burial. And what's happened? Joseph is now coming out into the open about his commitment regarding Jesus. The other Gospels tell us Nicodemus was there together with him, helping him. And verse 53 says, they laid his body in a tomb hewn out of the rock that had never been used before. Again, Isaiah 53 says that Jesus would have his grave with the rich at his death, fulfilling prophecy. No doubt this was probably Joseph's tomb. Again, it was a very expensive thing to have a a tomb out of the rock that had never been used before. But because Joseph was a wealthy man, again, they used hammer and chisel to do this. It It was a costly piece of real estate, you have to understand, to have a tomb. But at this point, Joseph, so devoted to Jesus, he chooses to use his valuable possession to honor the Lord as he wants to bury him. What I want you to notice here is this. It's in a difficult hour, a critical traumatic moment that this man Joseph has a transition in his spiritual life and his commitment to Jesus as his Lord. It is right in the midst, again, Joseph was what? A secret disciple of Jesus. At this point, he was a secret disciple, but now a powerful life experience happens and a pivotal shift takes place in this guy's commitment with the Lord. Where now, all of a sudden, he openly reveals his faith. And again, what was he thinking? Why have I been so ashamed? What have I been doing? Wasting time. Being intimidated to say that I love Jesus. That I'm a follower of Jesus. And it is a life-changing, difficult experience. The death process. A hard, difficult hour that takes the moment in this man's life where he puts his flag in the stand and he says, what am I doing? I follow Jesus. And there's nothing more valuable to do. And he comes out into the open with this commitment. And can I tell you something? Sometimes it takes major life experiences and difficult things in our lives at times to prompt people to really take their stand spiritually. I've seen it so many times. Not everybody, listen, not everybody is at the same pace in regards to bold discipleship. Some people got to work through some things. They need to process things and come to their own conclusions. But nobody can remain a secret disciple 
long term. We have to come to that place where we do boldly confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And it's important that we do. Again, Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. People go, what does that mean? It means, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father. I wouldn't wait to get on the other side of eternity to ask what that means. I would just act in compliance with what it says. And you know what? This morning, can I challenge you? Can I challenge us? Listen, was there a cost involved for Joseph here? Yes. Yes. This guy was risking some things, and, 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 but he shows us this morning it is worth giving up anything and everything to follow Jesus. And when we make that step in our lives where we get serious about our relationship with the Lord, listen, everything starts to change. Because then to live is Christ and to die is gain. Shall we stand? Let's close in a word of prayer together. Father, thank you for your word, for how it, Lord, speaks to us, how it stirs our hearts and challenges us. And Lord, would you give to us, to me, to my brothers and sisters, to those of us here in this room, the grace of God to be able to stand boldly for you, Jesus, to be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you, by your Spirit, embolden us to not be afraid of what others think or say or what it may cost us to be a radical dedicated follower of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray as well that by your Spirit's ministry, if there are any here in this room who've never made a personal commitment to Jesus, that this day, by your Spirit, Lord, you'd give them the grace and the courage and faith to do such. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.